Good afternoon. Welcome to Transformative Talks. My name is Courtney Thompson. And my name is Thomas Rooks. We'll be your host for this episode. Today we'll be discussing feminism and critically conscious education, how feminism shapes the mindset of our culture and community. Some of the leading authors we've recently read about are Kimberly Crenshaw and her theory of intersectionality. Thomas, I understand you're a special education teacher in a public middle school. Recently, you've had some conversations with your colleagues about feminism. Can you share a little bit about that? I'd be happy to. And so hopefully we have enough time to get through this because there's lots to talk about. And so feminism in general, we know incorporates the position that societies prioritize the male's point of view. And there's a lot of women in society that truly have an issue with that and rightfully so. And so um, to give a pseudo name, let's just say Miss L. She comes from a predominantly Hispanic community in Del Rio, Texas. And the more we thought about it, um, we talked about um, her upbringing, her parents, how feminism, what feminism even looked like, if she even knew what that meant. First and foremost, I want to point out that when we discuss feminism, it kind of had the feeling like it was a negative connotation, like it was something that was wrong, like it was bad. And we both kind of just talked about, you know, what feminism meant to each other. Me being a man, I had a different perspective, of course, than she did. And so growing up in a predominantly Hispanic community in Del Rio, she basically was um, taught to do as she was told. Um, it was a culture way. You know, the woman takes care of the man. The woman does the cleaning, the chores. She wasn't so much worried about her education as she was about taking care of the home life. Now, by contrast, uh, another colleague overheard the same conversation, and uh, she's a middle-class white woman. And her background, Courtney, was very, very different um, than Mrs. L's um, story. And so being able to really um, distinguish between the two stories and what the definition of feminism looked to each person truly opened my eyes to how disconnected we are in society with respect to what feminism is. To take that a step further, if I may, we know that um, we preach equality, we preach equal, you know, equal women's rights, et cetera, and rightfully so. Today, we're in a hashtag Me Too, move, Me Too movement. And uh, with that being said, um, personally, I, I feel that feminism should be at the forefront. Like, we should be talking about this instead of saying, like, it's taboo, like, oh, you're a feminist. Like, you, you don't know what you're talking about. And in reality, I think society, Courtney, doesn't know what they're talking about. Courtney, you mentioned in class about how your views most likely align with the third wave movement of feminism. Specifically, you wanted to, you wanted to fight for women's rights when it comes to health care and equal pay. However, you don't necessarily think that you are much affected by this equal pay issue. Why is that? Well, Tom, um, one of the things I had mentioned was that we, in this public education, we all have pay scales, teacher pay scales. Right. And that's based on um, how many years you've been working in Texas public education. And based on that, whatever your district um, has, your if you're like a first year, second year, fifth year, tenth year, whatever it may be, every tenth year teacher gets the same amount of pay. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. Right. However, it was pointed out to me um, through Dr. Haddad that while I may share, you know, both me and, you know, Mr. So-and-so may both be 10-year teachers, how much more likely is it that he's going to be a coach or be some um, sort of administrative position? So while we're both have been 10-year teaching, 
he on some level is going to get paid more for me than than I am because he was able to get the position of coach, whereas that's not necessarily a position I would be going for. So that was very interesting to me, and it kind of changed my perspective on equal pay. So basically what you're saying is male teachers or you know male professionals in education have more opportunity to earn stipends or do other things. Yes, I, I would agree with that. Um, while education, elementary education has predominantly women, your secondary, which is both middle school and high school, has more male teachers. Right. Um, and then you're also going to see, you know, people wanting them to be in those upper grade levels where secondary teachers would make more than an elementary school teacher anyways. I'm glad you, you bring it in that sense because as a male special education teacher, um, I have women that look at me almost like with a feminist perspective and that, oh, here comes the man to show me what I need to do in a special ed classroom. And my philosophy is the opposite. You know, I'm here as an equal opportunist. I'm here for the students not to come in and tell my well, you know, classmates, or pardon me, my, my staff or teachers in general, admin, how to do their job. And so I do meet some resistance in that sense, being um, a minority in special education as a male. And you mentioned the third wave. Um, it, it's, it's amazing because in that third wave, that's like right now, that's today's wave. You know, we talked about first wave, second wave, second wave was in the 1960s. And today's, uh, a moment ago, we talked about the hashtag MeToo movement. I feel with the advancement of social media, news, you know, everything is now. And so as to before, by the time it kind of got big in society, the problem was already escalated and snowballed into something huge. And I just find it baffling that even in 2019, with all of our technology, all of the knowledge, that we're still having issues in a sense of understanding what equality truly means. Thomas, earlier this week, we had the opportunity to discuss Kaufman's The Practice of Dialogue and Critical Pedagogy. What stood out most to you in the article? There's a lot that really stood out, but, um, you know, kind of right off the bat, I really thought the um, development of critical literacy was important to talk about. Um, you know, it states that critical literacy demands a reading of the world in which the very structure and practice of representation, meaning itself, becomes problematic. And so thinking about what that looks like, say, in a classroom or in a special education setting, um, you know, I hear critical literacy and you think reading, and which is important. But you know, when you read a book, we, we think of the WH questions, who, what, when, where, why. How can we look at the world in that same lens and think about, you know, what are we trying to say here? What's the argument? Are we trying to liberate? Are we trying for equality? Are we saying that women's rights don't matter, um, which we know is not the case, but why is it that some of these things come across as, as just being, I'll use the word sexist, I'll use the word like feminist, I'll use the word, like I said a moment ago, it's like a bad connotation that we demand so much as teachers, the law demands so much of us. It's like we've talked about teaching to the test, which is a whole other podcast, but with respect to feminism, that's just an example of someone saying, you must learn it like this. You must think within our box, not your box. I'm telling you, you're wrong. Where's the flexibility? Where's the being able to, how can you say, operate or um, just give your, your, maybe bring your culture or your background? And I'm all about assimilation, but at what cost, Courtney? I mean, um, if I'm Hispanic and I'm in a white middle class, upper middle class school, am I just supposed to automatically join the dominant culture uh, and leave my little piece of heritage behind just to quote fit in, just to quote fit the status quo, just so teachers will say, hey, you're smart and not you know, the opposite? And so um, Kaufman's article talks about a lot of things. And so 
um, again, and specifically, he had mentioned boundaries and how can we, you know, cross the boundaries that racism creates? And I use the word, unfortunately, with love and respect. Right now, the news is filled with border walls with, um, you know, and um, oh my goodness, and how um, just people coming in from other countries are saturating the United States. And I mean, again, another podcast, but how does that relate, Courtney, to Kaufman? I just feel that um, we need to have rational thoughts that are valued over emotion and passion, as Kaufman put it. And that way we can truly come to an understanding of what 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 feminism is and where it's going in today's society. You know, Tom, that's a great point. Um, earlier this week, we got to read Bell Hooks, um, Feminism is for Everybody. And she says in the article, children's literature is one of the most crucial sites for feminist education, for critical consciousness, precisely because beliefs and identities are still being formed. Um, she also goes on to say that public education for children has to be a place where feminist activities continue to do work of creating an unbiased curriculum. Mm-hmm. You know, as an elementary public educator, I can completely appreciate this. While I've been trained to look for like critical cultural pedagogy, I've never thought to look for feminism. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I've seen a lack of um, different cultural perspectives when it comes to the, the even the books that we we read to our children, the read-alouds that we think about, and um, I know that even. In previous courses, um, we've talked about how there's just a lack of, you know, children's stories about African-American children or lack of uh, stories about um, Mexican-American children. Um, but that never, it was never apparent to me until someone brought it up. Well, now that I've read Bell Hooks, I've never thought of necessarily looking at, um, you know, a, a feminist perspective either. When I think about all, a lot of the stories that I've read, um, like, you know, Dear David um, or Diary of a Wimpy Kid, those kinds of things, those are all from the little boy's perspective, from a male perspective almost, if you will. Um, but how often do we read about the female perspective? So often we we talk about, too, we talk about behavior um, and it, the difference between how a little girl is more set up for an elementary education versus a boy um and just how that how that relates in our teaching um but i think that feminism has got to be addressed with both genders in the elementary um education setting and now i'm i'm more aware of looking when i pick out you know the read alouds that we'll be doing in class um, or trying to tie different books to our curriculum I'll now be more aware of looking at it from a you know a critical lens of not only cultural um, and the different cultures that we have you know represented in the classroom but also both female and male perspectives as well those are excellent points and that ties right into the intersectionality of studies um, the Crenshaw McCarr article that we read and you know as stated deployed by many Uh, intersectional academics and activists, intersectionality helps reveal how power works in diffuse and differentiated ways through the creation and development of overlapping identity categories. So Courtney, you and I are talking about, you know, male and females and, you know, what resources are available. As a special special education teacher myself, I'm tasked with creating um, authentic books, if you will, for my students in the forms of social stories. And so, you know, I find that women or young children in general, young girls in general, um, you know, we need to make sure that they're taken care of in the sense that we're not just going with the status quo. Differentiated instruction in special ed means creating an individualized educational plan, not a one-size-fits-all. And I really like how Evangelina pointed out that the more we understand how the social system works and how it affects our society collectively or keyword here individually, 
the greater the opportunity we'll have to find solutions. And so for us in a classroom, solutions are really academic based, right? In our world as well, in applied learning environment with special ed, I'm also thinking about life skills. I'm also thinking about getting my students ready for post-secondary, whether that includes community college or a job in general. All the feminism that's around right now with respect to our special education students with the phrase love and respect, preface Courtney, how do students who don't have that cognitive ability just go through life and just accept what, you know, accept the status quo? Who's the advocate for students who, um, you know, I'm not talking just special ed students, but women in general, the feministic points of views of the male dominance, the culture dominance. And so right now um, we live in a time where it's fragile, our community's fragile. And so it's concerning to me. Um, and I like how the intersectional, how Kaufman pointed out once again, Focus shifts, Courtney, into the realm of politics. You and I have not even discussed politics yet and what that looks like. And now I hear the cliche of there's um, um, politicians who are creating laws for students, creating laws for education, but what's the cliche? They're not teachers. They're not in the classroom. And so it's easy, I'm gonna know, it's not easy, it's sad in a way that feministic views that come from a top-down approach are, who's the bottom? the minorities, the students in the low SES communities. But we're making laws and regulations that are a one size fits all. All these articles basically suggest, you know, let's think about culture, let's separate. But why don't we do that in society? I feel like there's like there's that third wave of where we are today and how can we break the mold? Right. You know, I love that. Um, when we were reading, again, Bell Hooks talks about everything we do in life is rooted in theory. Um, whether we consciously explore the reasons we have a particular perspective or a, a particular take, um, like what actions are going to be done like in the underlying system, um, like our, our thoughts are being shaped by the system that we're in. Um, and while we've talked about before that education is an institution, mm -hmm. um, and until we talked about this explicitly, I'd never thought about the conceptual frameworks or the theories that affect us. Mm -hmm. um, I, I know that there are theories out there that, that haven't even been named. Exactly. There are things that we're not even aware of yet because they don't have a name. And I know that um, Crenshaw talked about this specifically is that we've got to have we've got to have a name for it, which is why she coined intersectionality because there wasn't something that talked specifically about where the two, two diverse groups meet, you know, where you have women and where you have, um, African Americans and where those two places meet. But there's, there's so many things like that when it comes to feminism and, um, yeah, Crenshaw points out, if I just make Courtney, you know, language yeah. barriers present another structural problem that often limit the opportunity of non-English speaking women. So that echoes what you kind of just said right there with respect to what advantages do, what advantages the English speaking women have versus people who come to the United States with non, who don't speak English. Right. And what do we know? What's the dominant language here? English. Right. And so what does that look like for women with respect to equality? Right. I know that, um, again, with Crenshaw's um, definition of intersectionality and, and needing a framework, I feel like this is something that we've got to discuss more in um, special education as far as mm. intersectionality yes. and ability um, because if we need a framework in order for action. You know, we talked about the, the political aspect of all of this. Well, Politics often um, 
you know, the reason for them is so that we can take an action. And if we don't have, if we don't have the framework, if we don't have the theory, then we can't have the, the discussion, which means we can't have the discussion in politics to further the action. It's like, right? Sher- it's like Sherry Ashi said the other day, um, the function of intersectionality, intersectionality is more like a magnifying glass. We overlook some of the major factors of feminism and intersectionality magnifies those that go unnoticed. So again, in a special ed classroom, put the magnifying glass. What goes unnoticed with feminism? What's going unnoticed in that, in that um, third tier, if you will? How can we intertwine politics, race, culture, and come to an agreement of what equality should be? Maybe that's a perfect world scenario, but I truly feel in a lot of these articles, in a way, that's kind of what we're saying. You know, Schleter and May uh, talked about the popular culture that our youth creates in peer groups. Being in a secondary campus, you know, there's a click, there's a who's who. If you don't share ideo- ideology with some of your classmates as a fancy word, what usually happens? You're, you're outside looking in. With today's pop culture, you're not part of that 90210 group, Courtney. Right. You're kind of outside looking in. And so what does that look like? Why should someone change per se, change their persona, change the way they dress, talk, look, religion, just to do what? make the status quo, meet the status quo, fit in in today's society. And so I can appreciate, I guess, why individuals or women do that, but I don't believe that it's the right way. And so as we've learned, like oppression is there, oppression is real. And we say, okay, go seek a shelter, get out of an abusive relationship, go away. That's easier said than done. At the end of the day, what does that cost? It costs money. And a lot of women that leave, unfortunately, get wrapped up in the system and start back at square one where it might be worse. Right. And then what's the point? And so... I mean, Crenshaw's um, Mapping the Margin, she talks about that specifically. She talks about how these women are poor women and then we never talk about why they don't leave or why they don't get out of the relationship. And, you know, something that dawned on me because she said it was... Maybe it's just for love. Maybe the reason they don't turn these people in is they just love their partner. And so they can't see outside of that love for the person and they continue to stay wrapped up in this cycle. I mean, but it also was interesting to me that she talks about how these women are poor um, and they come from poor families, meaning that it would be a burden for them to go live with these other people or that the, the family that they have that would back up. Maybe those in the white middle class women who, you know, would be able wow. to take on that family member. That if, if you come from a family that's also low income, how are they going to support you? How are they going to take you in? They don't have the means to do that. Right. And that was the difference between the women of color versus the, the white women when it came to using those, um, their their family and such for that support is that they didn't have that in those other communities because wow. their community, the communities themselves were poor. Well, during that second wave, like it said in Levinson, you know, that second wave in the 1960s, it originated with the ranks of middle-class white women claiming the right to live educated and economically powerful lives. The key that stands out to me there is white women, middle-class mm-hmm. white women, why can't it just be women in general? Right. Why do we have to stereotype a, race, a particular race and say one race is better than the other? Because I think from a starting, I mean, I, I guess I can understand why from our historical perspective, but that doesn't make it uh, right. Does it mean that we have to accept the status quo? Well, when Judith Butler uh, talks about in her book, Gender Trouble, representation, which serves as a, as a term for a political process, you know, and I never thought about this, but... 
The term representation literally means that somebody has to stand in for you, that you cannot do your own bidding, essentially. Wow. Um, and, you know, representation is a normative function of language, but the fact that women need representation, that they need someone to represent them, already, you know, frames it as that they are lesser than. Mm-hmm. So that's one of those things when it comes to politics, when we talk about somebody representing us in at the in the state capitol or in the legislature or whatever it is on some level it's already demeaning that we need representation right that that kind of reminds me of that inherent um, symbolic map that we have in sight this is the way it is this is the way we know and this is how we're going to negotiate or navigate through our experience because we don't know any better and so um i mean knowledge is power right we talk about funds of knowledge we talk about um, coming to school, our, our Vygotsky piece and our zone of proximal development, the, what we know, the areas we don't know. And so with respect to feminism, how can, we, how can we fill the gaps? What can we do with respect to you and I being special education teachers? What does feminism look like in the field of special education? And so um, I would love to um, dive into that a little bit further yeah. with further research. So we read an article called Toward a Field of Intersectionality Studies, uh, Theory, Applications, and Praxis. Praxis. Um, with Crow, Crenshaw, and McCall. And they talk about if you recognize that the conscious effort to develop a methodology for literacy across all disciplines and all contexts, then we can be productive. But it would seem that future development of intersectionality would, would be at, at play. And I say that to emphasize the interdisciplinary works that would have to take place. You know, we've talked about this several times now that we're in an interdisciplinary studies um, program, but th- there are so many pieces that would have to come together, and we've got to start the dialogue. You know, whether that, you know, we talked about bilingual education, when we talk about special education, and when we talk about uh, literacy, all of those things, all of those people would have to come together, some intersection, you know, the intersectionality there, in order to form. Um, form a way of thinking or pedagogy or curriculum that would benefit all students. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. And so, again, we talked earlier about individualized education plans. In a perfect world, we could individualize, but teachers are tasked with facing the needs of all students. And so that kind of reminds me of the the sex gender desire article that we read and how it talked about, you know, women as a subject of feminism with respect to representation. And it goes back to that political piece again, that political process. Everything you and I do, Courtney, is bound by what? Law. Right. You and I can't go to class and say, hey, guys, today we're going to do this because Courtney and Thomas want to do it this way. While we have flexibility and autonomy as a teacher, we're bound to follow the laws of the state of Texas. Mm-hmm. With respect to feminism, women in a sense, just like I have to do what the man says. I have to do the cultural dominance piece because that's, again, my historical map. That's all that I know in my DNA and a lot of these articles just talk like scream the opposite. It's like oppression. How do you, how are you going to oppress people who are already suppressed? Right. It's like how much lower can we go? And so to echo what you just said a moment ago with respect to, you know, women going through the cycle of poverty, going through the cycle of abuse, going through a cycle of rape, going through a cycle of being hungry, going through a cycle of having children, drugs, etc. These are all problems not just minority women face. You mean to tell me that there's no affluent white women and middle class that don't have some of the same issues? I think those issues are kind of hidden. Right. We talked about the magnifying glass a moment ago. Because you're the majority, it's easier to hide stuff. And when you're the minority, everyone's looking to get you. 
Right. And so, um, and I think that that was definitely Crenshaw's, you know, point of view there is that that's where being black and being a woman is, you know, basically what has failed a lot of a lot of them. That the problems that you see, the white women just don't don't face because they are in the upper middle class, if you will, um, you know. And <laughs> she also talked about black crime yes. and how black women are. Um, you know, seen differently even in that sense and that nobody knows about them because here we are talking about Black Lives Matter. You know, that's something that's come up in politics a lot lately. Here we are, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. But if we noticed that when we started talking about Black Lives Matter, it was all about black males' lives that matter. Mm -hmm. It wasn't truly all black lives matter because we we weren't hearing about these women who were in the same situations when it came to police violence. Wow, that reminds me of the TED Talk that we just recently watched where it had pictures and it had the names of African-American men who had been murdered at the hands of maybe police or other, you know... Police brutality. Yeah, police brutality, that's correct. But did we hear anything as such about the women? No, what makes course. a woman less the woman's life less important than with all love and respect to Trayvon Martin or somebody who was murdered at the hands of police in his own house? But what about our women who face the same kind of oppression? And, you know, that Bernie Sanders piece that uh, you brought to class the other day, it really brought to light the needs that are people of color, people in poverty and our LGBT community. What are their needs as well? All of those are important um, facts or components to talk about with respect to feminism because it all has an underlying connotation of what society in general how we view the status quo and I think at the end of the day Courtney that's what you and I are talking about with all this knowledge and theory is you know we both seem to agree that feminism has a had or has a negative connotation how can we educate in society without coming across as well, that's probably why feminism is the way it is, Thomas, because you're coming at me with this rah, rah, rah. But right. it's the opposite. Right. I think that obviously dialogue is very important. Um, and I know that you and I are both are special education teachers in uh, the public school system. So I definitely think that that's somewhere where we can start, uh, you know, as individuals is definitely having those conversations inside of the school system. Um, we talk about, I know that uh, Dr. Haddad talked about his conceptual framework and like how, you know, it, out somebody is if you will and so on some level like how feminist are we how active about our feminism are we and that's something that we need to look at um so when we talk about um butler she talks about also um you know your your pre-service teachers Mm, right the ones that are in undergrad and she talks about the formation of women's studies programs in colleges and universities and um you know, students who attend women's studies classes were there to learn. They wanted to know more about feminist thinking. And um, I, had, I had mentioned in our uh, dialogical journals that, you know, I took a class at AM. And one of the things that I remember, I don't remember a lot about the material because I was in a um, program which was hard sciences and the majority of my professors were males and everybody that I was around um, a lot of males were in the program and I was so worried about doing well in those classes I didn't really pay attention to my feminism class which I wish I would have but um, one of the things I did notice in the class was that you know out of the 
25 of us in there or something, 23 of us were females. Mm-hmm. Why is it that, that this was pointed out as a class for me to take? Wow. Why as an undergrad was this something that I should take, but where were my male counterparts? Right. And why weren't they in the class too? If this is, why is this something that as a humanities, you know, that we do all have to take humanities, why is it that we don't all have to take a feminism class? I absolutely agree with that, Courtney. I, I couldn't agree with you more. As we talked earlier, I mean, I'm a gentleman, a minority in the field of special education surrounded by women. Um, yes, I mean, men need to be in classes as such. And so I would have a better, I feel I'd have a better appreciation, feminism, culture, women's rights in general. I know I'll never be a woman, but I could, does not mean I can't try to understand logical thinking? And try to understand, you know, not only just say and under and know what hardships women face, but maybe why and how we can overcome those. And so I would have loved to have had an opportunity to take that course with you. I can say on the flip side to that, with respect to special education, with respect to social economic, with respect to politics, unfortunately, when students come from other countries with that ESL background, the English as a second language, we might track a student for its sped when in fact they just might need other help. They may, they may need differentiated instruction of a different type. Oh, your speech is not correct. You don't have the right clothing. You don't look right. All these things that are, I mean, that's discrimination, but yet it's accepted in some ways. And as educators, when we put up our hands for resistance, we're looked upon as you're making trouble, Thomas. You're not doing what you're told, Thomas. Why are you making problems? It's like, when people ask me, Thomas, how do you advocate for your students? What I just said right now gives you a perfect example of how. Because I'm going to go out and say the things that make people uncomfortable, not to be mean or rude, but to advocate and bring to light the hardships that women, students, et cetera, face. And so um, that's important, especially for pre-service teachers to understand. Because teaching is not just theory. You have to understand what application looks. As a teacher and as and a being lucky enough to be a, a college professor um, of pre-service teachers, a lot of people go into the education world, Courtney, with the blind with the blinders on, thinking, "Oh, I'm going to teach kinder. It's going to be great. Right. I'm not going right. to have to worry about any standardized testing. I'm not going to have any sped students in my class." I, I do a, 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 a what do you say? I do I do a, a icebreaker. I want you to do a task analysis. Write me how you would make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. That seems simple enough, right? Well, everybody has a different starting point. And that's my point with, with this is that some people go right to putting the peanut butter on the bread. Some go, let's get the plate out of the cabinet. Some let's get a knife. Everybody has a different starting point. Education, women, feminism, the understanding of what we have, it's different. How can we bring some commonality to feminism? How can we bring commonality to, and more podcasts like this is a wonderful opportunity to spread the word, to have opportunities for dialogue. And so earlier in the year, we read about, you know, from Leonardo, that critical social theory, how it elevates students' ability to critique institutional as well as conceptual dilemmas. Not everything's perfect in the world. You're right. not going to get everything in this really nice rainbowy way. You're going to have to critically analyze things. Right. Dr. Haddad brings up great points um, with respect to understanding what racism is, what reverse racism is, what cultural biases is, and the types of um, opportunities we as mid- white middle class, whether it's women or men, um, LGBT, all kinds of races, what discrimination do we face daily and how do we react to that? Do we put our fists up? Do we fight with our hands? Do we fight with our mouth? Do we fight with our ears or all the above? Right. And so I think different people would answer that question differently. 
Um, I'm here to say that I think having this discussion is a start. Podcasts like this, theories like this, opportunities for social dialogue is super important. I agree. Um, I, I, I love the fact that you talked about how you are a college professor and you are talking to those, you know, pre-service teachers. And I think that that's something that we all have to um, continue to work on as, as far as those of us who are doctoral students is just continuing to have that dialogue and um, continuing to try to take action um, as far as talking to our pre-service teachers or talking to our colleagues in our public schools um, and then, you know, maybe influencing the legislature as well. Um, I think about um, Courtney, like uh, Michael Foucault and how he talked about, you know, the that that panopticon piece and how people are always looking even when they're not looking. And, you know, in education and in, in general, in the world and society, there's always somebody looking, right? We want, they want us to believe that. And so do you think, Courtney, and maybe a question posed to you is, do you think with the perception that Big Brother is watching you, that that hinders people or maybe scares people into giving their best, doing their best, or bringing ideas? What are your thoughts on that, maybe? Oh, I, I definitely think that, that there's a, a, a scared aspect, if you will. I mean, I know when I first heard the term feminism and that we were going to talk about it, I was completely shy of the thing, only because of the negative connotation. However, now that we've really discussed it and delved into what feminism is and those that are fighting for it, um, what that means, I'm proud to be feminist, you know, and um, I want to continue to have those conversations and um, the dialogue so that that we can change the world. You know, as, as we kind of wind down, Courtney, I'm reminded of uh, Dodd's article and how she talked about the use of the F word. And when you hear that, the negative connotation, uh-oh, here comes a bad word, here comes something negative. We're talking about feminism. It's something that really should be able to come off a tongue with no problem, but not be so taboo to talk about. We all want equality. We all want income equality. We don't want inequality. We don't want to be um, discriminated. We don't want to be suppressed. We want our voice to be heard. But the question or the point to that is at what cost? Do I have to lose my identity as a person? Do I have to leave my culture, race, um, my beliefs behind to, for what? To fit in with whom? The Western way? The white middle class way? And so I feel like we've posed some, we've brought up some good points and also brought some additional questions that maybe our classmates or just other people in society can think about is, yes, feminism is there. It's been here. We're in the third wave. And you and I have talked, um, you know, informally about the fourth wave and the potential for that. And so um, this is not the end. This is not the, the dialogue. The discussion is just beginning and will continue. Yeah, I completely agree. Tom, I, I want to fin- finish by saying I, I really appreciate you sharing your stories and your input, your insight and the things that you've learned this past week about feminism. Um, I'm hoping that I continue to get to work work with you in our Ph.D. program and continue to see you evolve your way of thinking and how you shape others. And I really appreciate that. Thank you for your kind words. And, and likewise, it's like, you know, uh, we're a cohort of 10 and uh, there's two gentlemen in here. Uh, three, I'm sorry, there's three, so 30, 30% out of 100, um, you know, we have a male representation right. in here, but that's that's good, and so I do not feel intimidated with respect to being around women, with being around educated women, key point, and I feel that each one of us in the group brings that unique perspective from uh, our culture, um, for our, you know, our understanding, our, our different professional careers. We represent a small sample, Courtney, of society. 
We represent a small sample in this room of the hardships that societies face. Just because we're a PhD student doesn't mean we're immune to, you know, the horrors of the world per se. And so, you know, I'm sure for save it for another podcast, the discrimination you and I have experienced in our own life, where whether we would call it racism, social biases, um, but in general, I just begin to bring some closure. I feel that the dialogue needs to continue. I feel that um, feminism has been around for a long time uh, with respect to that negative connotation. And I don't want to harper on that, but I just feel it's important to bring up again, how can we as society truly open the eyes for everyone to understand that this is not a bad thing? Like there's hardships, but we can fix it. There's things that are wrong, but we can fix it. And the thing that it sounds great, Courtney, how do we fix it? How do we come to an understanding and an agreement as to what direction are we going to go? And so that would be um, an excellent future podcast with respect to this is where we are. Where are we going? Right. And so thank you very much, guys, uh, for listening to our podcast. Uh, Courtney and I I have very much enjoyed and we hope that you've learned a little bit more about feminism. Thank you.